Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, the podcast brought to you by Advomed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, president and CEO of Advomed. Today, we're pleased to be joined by Mike Musalam, a veteran of the medtech industry who has led Edwards Life Sciences for the last 20 years and is also a dedicated member of the Advomed board. As CEO of Edwards, Mike has positioned the company as a leader in life-saving cardiovascular technologies. He has also made philanthropy a big priority, gifting millions of dollars to nonprofits around the world. So we'll talk about some of the important work he does there as well. Mike started out his career, as he puts it, saving engine blocks before he transitioned to a career dedicated to saving lives in the medtech industry. So with that, let's jump right in. Okay, welcome, Mike. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thanks, Scott. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, we appreciate you taking time with us. And I know those who listen to this show are looking forward to hearing from you. So I always like to start the show talking a little bit about the person behind the, the big title of CEO. Give us a sense of your background. Where, where were you born and raised and sort of how you grew up? Yeah, so people may wonder about the origin of my name. Actually, all my grandparents came from Lebanon, turn of the century. Okay. So the extended family is actually quite large. And we a, there's a lot of pride amongst the Lebanese, and uh, we get right. together, and we still have big parties together. I was one of three boys in a wonderful household. I grew up in Gary, Indiana. Very, very loving, sort right. of uh, nurturing kind of environment. And my parents, you know, sort of sole purpose in life was to just give their kids a better life. Yeah. Well, what a great life. I had a friend that I played basketball with who was from Gary, Indiana. And he loved growing up in Indiana and played with him in college. And he said to me, basketball in Florida is nothing like it is in Indiana. I don't know if you experienced that as well or not. No, that's for sure. <laughs> Great basketball country. You had two brothers, you said, growing up as well. You gave a donation recently, Mike, to a very important cause of yours that I think is connected to your family as well. Talk about that and, and why that matters to you so much. Sure. Actually, my older brother, George, was born with Down syndrome. Okay. So he was born in 1950. And back in the days, this was not a, this was not a pretty picture or a pretty diagnosis. Right. And I can only imagine what my parents felt, felt mm. like in their firstborn uh, to have Down syndrome. And actually, they didn't know it right away. And it took some months before it was diagnosed. And uh, they would share a message like, um, your son is a mongoloid idiot, yeah. right? Yeah. And talk about that you should put him away. But you can imagine what parents were like. And my mother was pretty remarkable, and she actually quit her professional job just to devote her life to raising my brother George. Wow. My brother George became an incredible centerpiece of our family and a source of love. Here's mm-hmm. somebody that would ask you every day whether you still loved them, and he'll right. tell you how much he loved you and so right. forth. You can imagine what that does yeah. to a family. But it also ends up having an impact. You have somebody like that who finds it very difficult to learn and learn slowly right. and you see the obstacles that have to be overcome. And my brother George overcome incredible obstacles. I'll give a lot of credit to my parents, my mother in particular, learn to read and write and handle money and so forth that I still say to this day that he accomplished more with his God-given abilities than right. I ever accomplished in my life. And it causes me, I think, to be a better person mm, yeah. and a better leader when I had the opportunity to, to grow up with that. And uh, yeah. it affected all of us that had somebody like that in our life. 
Yeah, that, that's an amazing story. And obviously, as a result of that, you've contributed a lot to causes they to have. help others as well. Yeah. Right? And so interestingly enough, my wife also had an older brother with Down syndrome. Is that right? And so wow. together, this is the source of our philanthropy. This is the centerpiece of right. it. And uh, we do a lot for Down syndrome, particularly focus on the health Right. of Down syndrome adults because that's not well understood. Our brothers both lived to 58 years old. That didn't used to be the case. Wow. Our parents were also sort of organically organized other parents and they right. created places for them to go, places right. for them to live when they became adults so they wouldn't be burdened on the other brothers and sisters. And so these kind of causes we've uh, we've wrapped our arms around and that's a, it's an incredible community that we're very proud to support. Uh, that's fantastic and the, the work you've done has impacted a lot of lives. I was watching a, a special on ESPN some time ago now and it was with the former coach, national championship coach at Alabama, Gene Stallings. I don't know if you've heard his story or not, but he had a son with Down syndrome. Him telling that story about how his son, I think he said, had more of a positive impact on his life than anyone else did was kind of amazing. I mean, yeah. he would bring him to practice. He was part of the team. He was fully engaged. The kids loved him, right? And it was it was so touching and heartwarming. And it was clear how it impacted Coach Stullins, right? For yeah. the rest of his life, having a son like that, I'm sure it was the same for you. No, right? it is. And But it was a, a bit of a story of contrast. So those that didn't understand Down syndrome right. or maybe had a tough time themselves and saw it as weakness and so forth, right. could treat somebody with Down syndrome the opposite, right? Yeah. Without respect. Yeah. And those that had a chance to know them and understand them and, and feel their love felt the opposite. Right. And so it's a learning experience for all of us to go through it. Yeah, it's an incredible lift in your life when that's around you. Yeah. But if you're a few steps away, it's sometimes just yeah. misunderstood. Yeah. And, you know, it's true, you know, when people talk about diversity and inclusion and belonging, it really brings it to life yeah. because you had a chance to live it in a very real way. Yeah, and I was gonna ask that, it's a nice segue to the next question because I can imagine having that experience growing up, both you and with your wife, has in many ways impacted how you think about disabilities, how you think about inclusion when you're running a big company like Edwards. That must have been a motivation behind your work. Huge, it's natural to just open your mind to others and realize they have to come right. from a different place, have a different set of abilities, right. have a different set of values and so forth. And to open your mind to that yeah. and welcome that yeah. is something that often pays big dividends, yeah, right? Sure. Because you get surprised yeah, what's sure. on the other side. Yeah. Well, let's transition to your professional life. You're now CEO of Edwards Life Sciences, as everyone knows, but that's not where you began, right? Mm -hmm. So talk about where your journey began from a career standpoint and what led you to Edwards. Yeah, well, it depends how far back you want to go. Well, I always smile. Back, yeah. I always smile because uh, we we're always working. It was that kind of a family. And uh, early on, I was a paper boy. And people okay. don't even know what that is yeah. now, but that's yeah. what you used to deliver I, papers. I had that job too. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I delivered 72 papers, and I had a responsibility to do that yeah. every single day in the right way and right. make sure that it was dry and safe and all that. And then also collect at the time 35 cents from 72 people every two weeks. Right. You learn a lot about business skills and you responsibility yeah. when you go through that. And you know, I, I shared that with my brothers and we did it together. And it was some good early experience. But one of the things nice about growing up in Gary, Indiana is they had the steel mills and steel mills were big back in the day. Right. And so that was a pretty incredible wage, that union wage. And so to be able to get a job in the steel mills helped fund 
And I did that over my summers and sometimes yeah. on weekends to help right. fund my education. Right. And I also learned a lot from that experience. You know, some of it not so positive because yeah. you found people that were, you know, in a job that they didn't really love and they were trying to do as little as possible. Mm -hmm. So you got to see that side of the world. And yeah. it helps shape your values on, okay, what, what does a good company look like right. as opposed to one that's not so good? Right. Yeah. And then where did you go after that, your journey through the medtech industry? So I liked math and science and chemistry, and so I decided uh, with some urging from some supportive people around me to go into chemical engineering. Mm. And I thought that sounded like a, a great profession. I heard that they made a lot of money when they graduated which you know, I was a deep kid at the time, that sounded good to me. Right. But I didn't realize the chemical engineers got jobs in oil refineries and chemical plants. Oh, and so yeah. that's where my opportunities were. And my first job was working for Union Carbide, making Prestone antifreeze. Yeah. And I was uh, my first job actually was a production supervisor. So okay. there were about 35 people on the line that I was supervising. They were about my mom's age. Right. And uh, I used to think that supervisors told people what to do, and you find out in about a nanosecond yeah. that it's more like asking them if they'd like <laughs> to join you in a journey. Right? That's right. So you went from uh, making Presto and antifreeze, and eventually into the medtech space at Baxter. Is that <clears throat> yeah? So it was step? so it was a great experience at Union Carbide for a while, but after a few years, it wasn't very rewarding, and I yeah. decided to go to business school in the evenings. I was in New Jersey at the time. And I got exposed to the medical technology industry because there were some people in my class. It fascinated me. And this idea to do something much more important with your life than make an antifreeze and save an engine block, saving right. people's lives sounded a lot more interesting. And so I joined Baxter in 1979, uh, so about five years out of college. It started a career that I'm, I feel so so grateful and so blessed that I had the opportunity yeah. to have my life and be involved in medical technology. You know, it's been interesting to me, Mike, the story that you tell about starting in one industry, learning about the medical technology industry, and then staying in it for the rest of your career is consistent with almost every CEO interview that I've done. So many started somewhere else, but once they got here and they realized the impact they can have on people's lives, you just can't get out of it. Yeah, right? you it get the fever. Sucks you in, yeah. Right? because you, you see it every day in the work that you do. So you move from Baxter to Edwards. Talk about that transition or why leaving Baxter, a company and going into Edwards. So I was 20 years with Baxter and I, I started in kind of the manufacturing side and went into R&D and I could tell that story and I had a chance to grow, really grow up in Baxter. Right. And it was a bit of a meritocracy. If you got something done, they gave you more to do. And I had a chance to really grow responsibility. And by my later years in Baxter, I had a lot of responsibility. Now, during my Baxter years, Baxter acquired American Hospital Supply. Right. And with that came the Edwards businesses, if you okay. will. And so that was my actual first exposure. I was involved in making oxygenators, which were these things that replaced your lung during open heart surgery. And boy, I got to feel, I really loved cardiovascular medicine because it was, it was different in, than some of the other things that happened in medical technology. We were making millions of things. They were more eaches. Right. And there was a patient at the other end of each one of these. So it became very personal. Right. And you had a success, it was a big success. And when you had a failure, it was a big failure. Right. And that resonated for me. So I had a chance to do a lot of things across Baxter, but later on, and this is late 90s at this point, 
I was responsible for the cardiovascular business of Baxter, which became Edwards, as well as some other things. And we did an analysis of how we were doing, and actually the business was underperforming. Mm -hmm. And in the 90s, every other one was doing great. Medtronic and Guiden and Boston Scientific and St. Jude were all going gangbusters. And when we analyzed it, uh, the innovation had stopped. Mm. And so we said, you know, we really ha we need a new strategy. It needs to go one of three ways. Either Baxter needs to pump money into this business right. or acquire another good company and bolt it on or exit. Right. And for a variety of reasons, Baxter had had success with exits in the past. This was the poorest performing business in Baxter. And so the idea of feeding it or buying more of it, and what didn't really yeah. resonate. Yeah. And so they decided that they would spin it out. And right. so I raised my hand for that in April 3rd of 2000, or rang the bell at the New York Stock Exchange and broke off a chunk of this business. If you had five shares of Baxter, you got one share of this new thing, Edwards Life Sciences, right. and it became a, a freestanding publicly traded company. And that was the beginning of a incredible journey for us. Yeah. yeah. And clearly the right decision about Baxter at the time, right? Was it controversial internally as to whether or not to do that? or was it No, I th it was yeah. kind of like taking out the trash. I yeah. think yeah. to some extent yeah. it was kind of cleaning up the yeah. portfolio. The clear thought at that time was two years and a day after the company was spun out, it was probably going to be acquired by somebody else because yeah. then it would you still maintain the tax-free status of the spinoff. And so everybody really thought it was more of a short-term Right. strategy that made some sense. And right. Baxter gave us a parting gift of, you know, $550 million worth of debt and $800 million worth of goodwill. So Baxter was a better company right. for it as well. Yeah. And it was the beginning, but yeah. we were excited. We had big eyes right. and we thought, oh boy, you know, we're going to go make something happen. And our employees were all the way in. They're ready to go. I yeah. assume like when you took over that business that you didn't see it as a two-year window and an exit, right? Someone who acquire you at that stage. What was your vision then and how do you see that vision then? How did it translate to where you are today? Well, I mean, I was an optimist always yeah. and, uh, and dreamed big about what was possible. But the other thing that I was circumspect about is we had a lot of heavy lifting to do. Yeah. And we had to fix some things. We had to get out of some things. We had to re rejigger the portfolio completely. So there was a lot to do and we tried to be super honest with people and say, you know what, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Right. But we've got this idea, we've got this set of aspirations of what we could do. And so we were optimistic, but I think realistic along the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, little by little, we got better and better and better. And every time we got a little bit of extra money, we put it into R&D right. to invest in our future. And, and ultimately, we had some things go well. At some point, you must have realized it wasn't what they thought it was going to be when they spun you out. Was it two years in, five years in? You're like, hey, I see a path here to make this what it is today. We did relatively well. It was a little bumpy yeah. in the beginning. But you know, one of the things that was pretty transformational for Edwards is when we decided to get into transcatheter heart valves. Right. So we were the leader in heart valves with open heart surgery and this idea of catheters was important. So that first, we actually had an internal program and then we ended up making an acquisition in the end of 2003, so three years okay. later. And everybody didn't see that as a natural success. That, right. was a, that was a long shot, that was a roll of dice and it was a big investment for the company to go for it at that time. But it became part of this transformation of the company from what was a little bit more old school based right. in open heart surgery to 
using new technology to give patients a better experience. Right. Yeah. I, one of the uh, first visits I made after taking this job was out to Edwards, maybe a year or so in. And I remember going into your, maybe it's the Innovation Center or your Research Center, and Dirksen was with me and was giving me a tour. And we went into an area where there were, I don't know how many people, a lot of people in white surgical clothing and looked like they were actually making the valves right at that at the tables mm -hmm. and it was so impressive to watch them work and i assume that's a staple of the environment that you work in now talk about that yeah, lab essentially and what they're doing yeah it's incredible so people probably don't realize that the tissue heart valves we make are handcrafted yeah and there are well over a thousand tiny sutures in each one of those heart valves and so you actually have people that are gowned up in clean rooms, working under a microscope, putting each of these sutures in. So it's a labor of love. Yeah. One of the things that is actually so special about this business is when you're recipient of a heart valve, you actually get a card that goes along with it. And on that card, it has a serial number because we know everything about that heart valve and how it was made. And so when we have patients that decide that they want to visit the company, we can actually introduce them to the people that made their heart valve. Yeah, and we amazing. routinely have these very emotional connections between patients and our employees. And those employees become the centerpiece, the heart, really the heart of our company yeah, right. is where value really gets created. And we, it's a tremendous reminder for all of us about the importance of that work. Yeah, you know? life-saving innovation is not just a catchphrase for us, right? And you've just articulated it. It's exactly what we all do, right? And the people that are on that assembly line, if you will, and Edwards are doing something that does actually save an individual's life. It's an amazing story. It's huge. And we, we put a lot of energy to try and make sure that we bring that to life for our employees and constantly remind them yeah. of the importance of their work. Because forget any speeches about quality or anything right. that we might make right. as leaders. When people actually get a chance to hear the story of the patients and how their lives have changed completely yeah. because of this technology and, and a you know a small thank you yeah. to our team, our employees, it has lasting impact because people want to know, hey, when I have a career, you know, you're gonna put your your heart and your soul and your life yeah. into your career right. and you're gonna sacrifice time away from friends and family. You want to do something important with your life and to know that you're not only earning a, a nice wage and nice benefits and all that, but doing something really important for the world, for people, right. is everything. Yeah, you captured it early when you were talking about your job making Prestone antifreeze. Mm -hmm. You transitioned from keeping engines running <laughs> to keeping lives running, yeah. right, in the job that you're in now. And that's huge. I mean, it's just really huge. And it captures exactly what this industry is all about and why people come here and stay here for their entire career, right? So, yep. yeah, and you've seen that, you've seen that. You do, you see it in so many ways. I just feel like people in our industry, we connect naturally, yeah. even though there are times when we're competing and so forth, we have so many things in common. And I think nothing more in common than the important work that we do yeah. to sustain and improve lives yeah. on a regular basis. That's meaningful, and, and I also just notice it in terms of the way that our industry embraces the community. Right. We tend to be people that give back, yeah, right? right? And I think that's that comes from somewhere inside, and I think that's all part of that same DNA. Yeah. Let's transition, Mike, to the last uh, 18 months, almost two years now, believe it or not, since the pandemic hit. March of 2020, we were all sort of shocked. 
And then the first quarter of 2020 was rough for all of us. Mm -hmm. It feels now that we've weathered that storm to some degree and we're on our way back and reflect on where we are now or where you are now as Edwards and what that journey was like for you leading a company during a historically difficult time. Yeah, it's a really good point. And it was shocking and humbling for all of us as leaders. You know, right. as leaders, we're supposed to be able to predict the future and lead people ahead. We were totally on unstable ground because right. every day was a school day and we learned something new and had to adjust. One of the adjustments that I know that I had to make personally was to actually loosen my grip on the steering wheel mm. because the climate was so different around the world that we couldn't really maintain control from headquarters and right. we had to let our local leaders make the calls and we, we kind of laid out two premises and said you know please take care of our patients and please keep yourself safe but you know within those boundaries you have to make the the local calls and it turned out to be very beneficial it right. worked out quite well from that regard of course the company had less sales and so forth when hospitals basically kind of shut down yeah. and stopped doing procedures but I like to say it was much tougher on our patients than it was on the company. Right. For our patients, you think about it, particularly the people that Edwards serves, these tend to be an elderly population. In many cases, they have comorbidities, right. the exact people who are most vulnerable right. to COVID. And so they would stay away and not get their routine care. Right. And I think it's painful, and I think the full price of that is not fully known. We'll, it'll probably become apparent over the next few years as we look back and talk yeah. about the excess death and the excess suffering right. that probably happened as a result of the pandemic. But, you know, on the good side, it does feel like the healthcare system has done an incredible job of adapting right. to what's out there and that we've kind of turned the corner. Not that this will ever be behind us, but I think that we'll find a way to deal with the risks of the pandemic yeah. and find a way through and still be able to treat all the other important conditions that patients need to treat. We purposely tried to keep our foot on the gas through the whole thing, keep our long-term R&D programs going, keep our clinical trials going. Our people went in, you know, unselfishly went into work in hospitals every day to do whatever they could to support patients. And then most importantly, our supply chain just never failed. They just came in and they, they cranked, they showed up every day. And so it was impressive to see the resiliency of the team that just found a way to overcome obstacles that they would have never imagined. Yeah, that's right. You couldn't completely shut down Edwards and go <clears throat> virtual for everybody, right? You had to continue manufacturing. You had to continue people coming to work every day. How did you do that? Because there was a lot of anxiety, right, running yeah. through people's bodies during that time. So. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the toughest part is the supply chain, as you can imagine. The good news is our people work in clean rooms. And so those you tend to be in a pretty safe work yeah. environment once you're inside. But, you know, even things as simple as, okay, the parking lot and the cafes, how are you going to manage that right. during a pandemic? And in locations like Singapore, where we had a number of employees coming from Malaysia every day and the borders closed, how do right. you manage that? Yeah. And we ended up sort of arranging for temporary housing on the Singapore side for, you know, many, many, many employees, so forth. So there were just constant issues that popped up and people just found a way to overcome them. We, right. would, we would get tissue that was an important element of our heart valves that came from Australia, but the borders closed and the flights stopped. Right. And so how could you make that happen? So you escalate to the top of government in Australia and the right. U.S. and explain the situation. And people understand. Yeah. And you find a way through it. But everyone is, you know, a new challenge to be overcome. 
supply chain continues to be a problem for some in the industry. It sounds like you weathered it okay. It was difficult, but you've weathered it okay, and you're in a pretty good place now, right? Yeah, we're fortunate. You know, I think one of the things that helps Edwards a little bit is we're a profitable enough company that we can afford to invest in redundancy and right. in resiliency. There's incredible cost pressure. The lowest cost way to operate is with a single facility and with single suppliers. Right. And they have multiple facilities and multiple suppliers that back each other up. It costs. Part of this is, you know, we've been fortunate to be in a position to be able to handle it, but that's not the case for everybody. Yeah. You know. Well, one of the things that came to light during the pandemic because of some of the societal issues we were facing, right, was the racial unrest followed by this broader understanding of health inequities that existed in the system, Mike. But even before that, at Edwards, you guys had prioritized this and in a meaningful way for the last 15, 20 years, right? And what led you to that and where do you see it going? How much progress have we made in that space now? It's a great point and we get a chance to see it every day, whether it's in our own employee base or the doctors that actually do the treating of patients or the patients that are in right. clinical trials. You get to see it over and over again. You look at the diversity of the world that we live in and who actually does the treating and gets the treatment and you right. say it doesn't add up. Right. It's not fair in some way. And so it naturally causes you to think deeply about that. And you're right, we were going through that journey already as Edwards, but boy, the pandemic sure brought it to life more than probably any of us in, in a hurry. Right. And so I know our employees very much care about this. And, and actually the group that does a lot to help educate us and remind us what's important. Right. And they engage together in employee resource groups. They take on charitable activities mm -hmm. and kind of take responsibility to go and do something about it and try right. and be a meaningful force. And we just help to organize things and channel some energy and some resources to try and make broader progress. And you know, one of the things that's been nice is across Abamed, we found many like-minded right. companies that right. we've been able to team up with and say, hey, if we work together, what can we do to change things like the clinical trial environment right. such that we have you know more diverse enrollment in these trials when we're trying to prove some of our new technologies and and so those are great opportunities for us to make a difference yeah that's right i've said a lot of times to policymakers up here in dc thinking about policies like IMSA policies other healthcare policies that we've talked about a lot if you're wealthy and in the right pocket of this country, you're going to find access to the most innovative breakthroughs. It's just going to happen. If you're in an underserved community, a minority community, one that doesn't have access to these technologies, it's a lot harder to get that breakthrough technology that's going to save your life or your mom and dad's life. And that's, to me at least, why health equity matters so much, right? As you said, from the ground up, from clinical trials all the way up to access, right? And along the continuum, we have to stay engaged in all those areas. Yeah, it's very true. And, you know, the good news is now the physician societies are yeah. becoming aware and engaging in it at the same time. And uh, we can see it starkly in the United States. And here's the, the richest, wealthiest country in the world with, right. the, you know, some of the best access to health care where it's just not fair. When you get outside the U.S., it's even more dramatic. Yeah. And so we've got a lot of work to do yeah. to sort of improve that situation. We do. What's been encouraging to me, though, is that private industry has stepped up to address the problem without government having to come in and tell us to do it, right? We realize it ourselves. We've been focused on, on ourselves. 
Edwards has a tremendous footprint in the philanthropic space and the corporate responsibility space. The work that you're doing there is amazing, but it's spread throughout the whole industry now, right? We're going to take care of some of these problems ourselves without the need for others to step in and help us. I think so. I think it gets underestimated, the power yeah. of what we can do as companies and as, especially as associations like Avimed yeah. where we come together right. and we put our shoulder behind something, we can really make a difference. Yeah. And people are inclined to do it. If you look at the employees that are of the medical technology industry, we're of single minded. No, we want to make the world a better place yeah. in that regard. Yeah. yeah. Mike, you've also expanded your footprint, the footprint of Edwards around the world quite a bit in recent years, right? In Ireland, the Innovation Center in Israel, in Malaysia, and other parts, Costa Rica, other parts of the country as well. What led you to that and what challenges are you seeing in the other areas of the, of the globe? Yeah, thanks. Well, we're fortunate to be a growing company. And so right. part of that is we just needed to add capability. But one of the things that you know, we all got reminded by during the pandemic is that you know supply chains can get broken right and so our concept is one that wouldn't it be ideal if we could serve u.s customers with u.s manufacturing capability european customers with european capability asian customers with asian capability but those same capabilities could back each other up right around the globe and so we're implementing that kind of a model and so it's caused us to have new footprints and they've been very successful we're very proud in Costa Rica and Ireland they have new manufacturing facilities. We have a, a big technology center in Israel at this point that right. we're proud of and they tackle some of the toughest problems mm -hmm. that we have. Those kind of capabilities, global capabilities, I think just make us better. We get a lot of great cooperation between those facilities. There's, yeah, a little healthy competition, but mostly people making each other better. Did the pandemic speed that up for you a little bit? I assume that you were already thinking about it prior to the pandemic hitting, but pandemic, supply chain challenges that you saw there, did it speed up the process? Yes and no. So okay. the, it sped up the thinking and right. reinforced the concept of getting something built and up and running and validated and FDA inspected during yeah. the during the pandemic was a challenge. Yeah. Uh, people yeah. weren't traveling, right. but it sure reinforced the concept and said, oh, wow. Yeah, this became twice as important. Now right. we can see it all. It becomes vivid every day yeah. uh, when we watch what's going on across the our industry and others. I know in, in all the countries where you are, I'm sure you've been welcomed with open arms. I will say I've heard a lot of folks in our space who have talked about the innovation that's going on in Israel recently mm -hmm. yeah. and the uh, innovative environment that exists there. I assume that's part of the reason why you, you chose to launch the Innovation Center there. Yeah, we did a small acquisition many years ago of a team of 17 in Israel, and we kept those folks. It was impressive, and then did another one, and we got exposed to just how incredible that innovation culture is, that startup nation sort right. of culture that exists in, in Israel. And so there's a rich history of some great medical technology innovation in Israel. We really wanted to tap into that right. because innovation is such an important part of our strategy. And so, yeah, that became a key element. But you're right, we were welcomed yeah. everywhere we went. I mean, it, it's funny, the president of the country will come out yeah. and put their arms right. around you. Right. They really make it welcoming. And, and the, the other thing is, even though each one of these cultures is so different, where we all come together is doing good things for patients yeah. and everybody can relate to that in a very real way and find it motivational. And this is, you know, this transcends colors and cultures in, in every way. Yeah, that's right. It's the heart of everything that we do as, a, yeah. as an industry. 
I want to shift gears for just a couple minutes and talk about policy. You and I have talked a lot about federal policy, global policy, state policy, and why that matters to companies and why it matters to patients. We have one issue here in the U.S. right now we've been dealing with for some time now, which is the Medicare coverage of innovative breakthrough therapies, right? And it's been a little bit of an up and down. We're starting to make some progress on that. I think oftentimes, Mike, people don't fully understand why a policy like that matters to the patients at the end of the day. Maybe you can articulate it sort of from where you sit and your perspective. Sure. And it's one that I feel passionately about. You know, when it's all done, I, you know, the policy could sound a little wonky and yeah. so forth, but you kind of get what you pay for. Right. And when it's all done, you know, are we willing to pay for breakthrough technologies? Are we willing to reward that and have them sped to Americans, right. right? And so this becomes a fundamental issue of values and, you know, who are we and are we going to make that happen? And boy, did it ever come become vivid for us during the pandemic. Right. Boy, are we lucky that we had vaccines, but there are really important innovations that are happening across the landscape and a possibility for so many more. And why can't we get those faster to consumers? Right. And if you talk to CEOs across our industry or small company CEOs, they'll say, boy, I just can't get CMS to pay for my new exciting technology. Right. And so we're trying to advance some policy that would say, you know what, if something is truly promising and, and really a breakthrough, right. why shouldn't we give it a chance and pay for it for a period of time? And then if it proves itself out, go ahead and continue payment. And if it doesn't, we'll stop. But give those important breakthroughs an arm up. Yeah. yeah. Some of the skeptics out there say, well, the concern is you're going to speed products to patients that are unsafe. And the patients might not be safe using this new product. But I think those skeptics don't realize the FDA has already approved those products as safe and effective. Yeah. And that a doctor at some point has to make the decision, right? Yeah. As to whether or not it's safe and effective. And doctors should be able to make that decision in what's the best interest of their patient, right? Exactly right. I mean, it, people that feel that way obviously don't understand the rigor of the FDA process. Mm -hmm. the, the FDA does not lower the bar. Of course, they'd love to see breakthroughs, but they right. make sure that the rigor is there. And I think they should trust that FDA process that the, the safety and efficacy of the products have been very well vetted right. before it ever gets to that situation. Yeah, and doctors are not going to rush that into a patient if they don't think it's the best thing for them to do and a, and a way to save their lives. Right? And, and not at all. And the other part is the viewpoint of the patient themselves. Right. You have patients out there that say, I'm living a miserable life. Give me the chance to take exactly. that risk. That might exactly. be a risk that I want to take. Yeah, that's and right. I think that becomes an important part, an important enhancement of our decision-making process across healthcare is to bring the patient into it and say, yeah. okay, here's what we know and here's what we don't know. You know, where are you on this? Yeah, that's exactly right. The patient is at the center, as you have talked about for years now, mm -hmm. going back to your time as chairman of AdMed, the patient's at the center of everything we do, every policy that we advance, every policy we oppose. It's because at the end of the day, we're serving patients and patients need to have access to breakthrough therapies and all kinds of therapies, to be honest with you. so. It is. It's so important. And because healthcare can get complicated and be sophisticated, you know, patients turn to their doctor and say, you know, what should I do and so forth. And they become the speakers of truth and so forth. But to understand a patient's priorities and for there to be shared decision making, okay. if you will, I think is an enhancement that's still in front of us yeah. and, and that we're still getting our arms around. Yeah, it's one thing to talk about the IMSA policy from, as you said, sort of a policy wonkish standpoint. But if it's your mom or it's your dad 
and they're facing a life-threatening issue and they can't get access to something, I guarantee you, your, your opinion will change. That's right? it. Yep, that's, that's exactly it. Well right. Said. Yep. And so somehow we need to pull that back to the patient. Let me close with this question because I know there are a lot of uh, young employees in the med tech space, a lot of young entrepreneurs in the med tech space that look up to you, Mike, as a CEO, what you've accomplished. Many probably inside your own company, but across the entire landscape. As you look back over the course of your career and you think about what message would you give to the young employees, the young innovators that are moving their way up through this industry, are there two or three things that you would say, the advice that you would give them directly? Yeah, I'd say a few things. One is there's no single path. What's good for me is not necessarily good for somebody else. And to become aware of what you're good at and what you love is maybe one of the most important things that you do in your career. So for example, I, I'm a generalist and I'm good at you know getting an inch deep in everything and trying to knit right. it together. There's others that would be, are really best at going very deep and that's what they're best serve. I would encourage people to dream big yeah. and to give themselves the possibility and forgive themselves for dreaming big and making a mistake. Yeah. I think a lot of people you know, worry about making a mistake and therefore never reach high. Right. I think that's noticeable. People will notice if you reach high and you're doing the right thing, but maybe you fall short and you own your failure and you move right. on and you learn from that. That's such an important attribute and have the courage to be able to reach, I yeah. think is a, is a big deal. I had a friend of mine who's a coach who said to me, the most important advice he gives a lot of kids is oftentimes failure is the reason you're successful. Yeah. And it is always stuck with me, right? And it's right. You said, it, don't it, be afraid to fail, right? It's, because it's, that's how you grow. It's, it's so true. And the other maybe final one that I'd add is being successful in what we do is a team sport. Yeah. Um, this idea that I'm going to be great, but it doesn't matter to the people around me. No, not really. It's right. actually if it's it takes all those people around you for you to be successful, for the for the greater good to be successful. And this idea that you're really going to partner and be trusted and help others be even more successful mm -hmm. and so forth is where a lot of your own success will come. Yeah. Right. Well, that's great advice. I know everyone who's listening will uh, appreciate that. Mike, thanks for taking time to be with us today. Thanks for your long-time service as a member of AdvoMed, as a former chairman of AdvoMed, now on the AdvoMed board. You've chaired a number of our committees. The difference you've made in the industry and patient lives, I believe, as a result of your time here at AdvoMed has just been remarkable. And uh, I think speaking on behalf of all the employees of AdvoMed and the industry more broadly, we appreciate that. So thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm honored and humbled by that. And, and keep up the good work. Our association is so important, AdvoMed really pulls us all together. We're able to do bigger things than we could do on our own. Very good. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah. It's been, been a good conversation. For those of you listening, thanks for tuning in. For more episodes, visit advamed.org slash podcast or subscribe to MedTech POV on your favorite streaming platform. Until next time, this is Scott Whitaker. Have a great day.